For the next several weeks, we're going to be in Luke chapter 6, um, and uh, a section that is often called the Sermon on the Plain, and uh, it is likely this is a shortened version of an account from, um, from Luke, uh, the same account in Matthew uh, chapters 5 through 7 where it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, our, our verses, particularly chapter 6, verses 17 through 49, what they do is give us a glimpse of Jesus' teaching um, really to a mostly religiously indoctrinated people, a people who, who had the law and, and knew the law. And Jesus is trying to teach them um, what life in the kingdom of God is like, uh, how we live in his kingdom, and how we live as his people. Now, for us, this intentionally comes on, on the, at the end of our sermon that we just finished, or series that we just finished up, um, on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and how the gospel changes everything. Oftentimes, this, this comes around Easter um, because it's an opportunity for us to talk about uh, what's next for those who believe, for those who have come to trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and have been made new creations. Um, how, how do we live now? And so this teaching helps us with that. It's, it's Jesus telling us what living in the kingdom of God should be like. Um, so while the sermon part of this takes place in Luke 6, 17 through 49, this morning we're going to back up to the start of Luke, Luke chapter 6, verse 1, in the beginning of the chapter, um, and, and, and talk about the authority of Jesus the authority of Jesus. But it's not really um, just the authority of Jesus. It's the authority of Jesus as king. Um, the authority of Jesus as king in the kingdom of God. So um, I want us to pray together as we do every week. And I want to ask if you guys would pray with me, not just listen to me, but pray with me. Pray that the Holy Spirit would be good this morning to, um, to help us see that Jesus truly is king, and, and to help us um, with what difference that makes. So what? Jesus is king. Um, so pray. Pray that the Holy Spirit would teach us today. The Holy Spirit would bring conviction in our lives where that's needed and encouragement as well where that's needed. Would you all pray that with me? Good. Let's pray together. Father, thank you uh, that we can come together and pray and uh, for the the opportunity to, to be gathered not just as spectators today, but, but participants, um, participants in, in worshiping you and reading scripture together and now even praying together. We, we come uh, by your grace. Father, we pray that you would be good, that your Holy Spirit would teach us, equip us today. We pray, Holy Spirit, that um, those areas in our life where we are not where we should be, that you would convict, bring convic conviction to us and, and, and work to shape us more and more into the image of Jesus. Father, where we need encouragement today, I pray that your word would bring encouragement and that your Holy Spirit would encourage our hearts. We love you and our prayer is that you would do today what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Luke 
chapter 6. We're looking at verses 1 through 11, and I want to start out just talking about the events themselves, what happens in chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, and what we see is a Sabbath controversy. There's controversy over the Sabbath. So let's read our verses, first of all, beginning in verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said to him, uh, after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. All right, so the controversy was uh, about the Sabbath. So let me talk for just a minute about the Sabbath because we don't talk a whole lot about the Sabbath. There are really two main passages dealing with the Sabbath command in the Old Testament. The Sabbath was given as a part of the law, the covenant that God made with his people, Israel. So in the Ten Commandments part, this was one of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, uh, verses 8 through 11, uh, we read this, "'Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work.'" You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Leviticus chapter 23, uh, beginning in verse 3, says, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. There's one other passage I want to read. It doesn't say anything different except that it gives a penalty for breaking the Sabbath. Exodus 31, beginning in verse 12, And the Lord said to Moses, Sabbaths, For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. 
Now, I, I don't know um, a ton about the Sabbath. I'm not an expert on the Sabbath for sure. But from these verses and other verses that I have read and looked at on the Sabbath, um, the Sabbath really was, was given to mankind first in the garden, before it was even a part of the law. So this is a bigger issue than the law, although clearly it was also a part of the law. On the seventh day, God rested, and God said that we should rest on the seventh day as well. Um, The Sabbath was given to us as a gracious gift. And when it came to the law, as a part of the law, uh, the Sabbath was also a gracious gift. On the seventh day, again, God's people were to rest and to remember him to remember who he was, to remember all that he had done for them. So, so it was a day of rest. It was a day that they are commanded to do no work. No one in their household, not even their livestock, should work on the seventh day, the Sabbath. Uh, it was to be a time for them that was spent reflecting on God, worshiping him, remembering all that he had done and who he was, and, and, and it was a day for them to rest. So rest and worship. And then a third thing is that it was a sign for other people of the covenant that God had made with his people. It was a sign to them because largely in the world, the world didn't take a Sabbath day, m- much like our world today. There is no rest. Um, We don't rest. We work all the time or we play all the time and we're going, 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 going where, where God created us for rest. So in their day, this was a sign of the covenant with God that this entire nation of his people would stop all of their activity on this day and they would rest and worship him. It was a sign for the other nations who worked all the time or who didn't have this day of worship and rest set aside for them to see um, this nation do that and and even to ask, like, what are you doing? Why do you stop on this day, your entire nation, to rest? And so the sign of the covenant would then give them the opportunity to talk with those other nations about all that God had done for them and who he was, right? So it was even missional, this day of rest that they took. So the, the Sabbath, the Sabbath was given for the good of God's people. It was given for the good of God's people, and it was given for the glory of God. Now, it was obviously a really important law because it came with a penalty if it was broken. And breaking the Sabbath had some severe penalties, even including death. So, so stick with me on this. Since the law, right, I read those verses so you would see, the verses say not to do any work, you or your household, but then the question becomes, and it's got a severe penalty if you don't do what the Lord said, what is work? What constitutes work? Is fixing a sandwich work? So, so this was an, a, a real question for the religious leaders. The religious leaders saw this as, as vague, um, going all the way back, and, and, and they set out to help God's people identify what it means to work. So I think that initially, the idea for the religious leaders was a, a, a beautiful idea to help God's people keep the law and not break the law and glorify God and live a life that was good for him and good for them. I think their intentions were really, really good, but they went on to add 39 categories of Sabbath rules. 
categories, 39 categories of Sabbath rules, not 39 extra rules. There were, I read in one place a little over 100, another place 157 total Sabbath laws that were attached to God's command to keep the Sabbath. That's where things get a little bit crazy in the Sabbath laws. Let me give you an example. One of the examples that is actually given in the, in the teaching of what constitutes work. Um, it, it's not mentioned in our verses today, but there was a law that was added to this about separating foods on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to separate foods on the Sabbath. So you're like, what does that mean, separating foods? So what, what, what people would do is to keep from working on the Sabbath, they would, they would prepare their food the day before. So let's say, for example, that you had grapes and you had taken grapes and set them aside to enjoy on your Sabbath day without working. So you're eating your grapes and you run across one that's really squishy and moldy and rotten. Terrible. You were not allowed to set that grape aside and eat the rest of the grapes because that would be separating your food and you're breaking the Sabbath. I'm not kidding. Isn't that silly? That, that is how detailed the laws became on what you could and you couldn't do on the Sabbath. So when we go back to what Jesus was doing with his disciples, we see another way that the law was broken. Jesus and his disciples were walking through a a, a grain field and they were hungry. Now there were laws that were written that said when you're walking through a grain field, you are free to take the grain of your neighbor. You can't sell it and you can't like take a bunch of it home for yourself. But if you're hungry, you're free to eat some of their grain. So they're walking through a, a, a field and they are they are taking some of, of the grain for themselves. Now, to, to eat the grain, for them to eat it, they couldn't just put everything in their mouth. So they would rub the grain to get the grains out, right, to separate the grains, and then they could just eat the grains. Plucking the grains was considered by the Pharisees as work because they defined it as harvesting. E- even that is silly. Like because you plucked you were harvesting. And, and then when they rubbed it together in their hands so they could have some of the grain, separate the grain, and be able to eat that, that broke the law because it was winnowing. Winnowing. They were separating the, the, the wheat from the chaff. Now, those are just silly, but to me, anyway, obviously it wasn't to them. This constituted work for them, and doing that meant that they were breaking the Sabbath law. I want to say this again. The 39 categories and the 100 or 157 rules that were added to are not found in Scripture. This is what the religious leaders added to in order to help define what work was. The, The second Sabbath controversy came over healing. Healing on the Sabbath was considered breaking the law. It might be an exception if the person's life was in danger. If genuinely their life was in danger, then maybe you could heal them. But Jesus healing a man with a withered hand, his life was clearly not in danger. So, so the Pharisees see Jesus walking through the grain field, he and his disciples eating, he's breaking the law. 
The disciples and Jesus are in the synagogue and this man with a withered hand is there and they are looking to Jesus to see because they know that he heals people. Will he heal on the Sabbath? Because if he does, he is breaking the law. 39 categories, 100, 150 plus additions by the religious leaders. That's the setting for these two stories, these two Sabbath controversies. So next comes the confrontation. Let's talk about that. First, overeating the grains. The Pharisees see what's happening and they confront Jesus. They come up to Jesus, chapter 6, verse 2. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus, when they confront Jesus, they see Jesus doing it, the Pharisees come out and they confront Jesus, and Jesus points them back to Scripture and to King David, a man after God's own heart, and he points them back to the day when King David broke the law by going into worship in 1 Samuel chapter 21, by going in on a day of worship and taking bread that was meant for the priest. He took the bread from the temple. Now, what Jesus is doing here is completely flipping the script, if you will, on, on the Pharisees. They confronted him uh, about his actions, and now he is turning that and confronting them. And what he's confronting them with is their own lack of knowledge and understanding. Some of that lack of understanding is of the Sabbath itself. So in, in, in Mark's version of this, um, Mark's version of this confrontation, he includes Jesus explaining, was made, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath should not bring harm or cause injury to God's people. The Sabbath was meant by God to be a gift for his people. It's a gift, a gift of rest and a gift of, of worship. But with their 39 categories and, and more than 100 laws, the religious leaders had turned the gift of God, the gift of, of the Sabbath, into shackles and bondage and even slavery. Sabbath was no longer serving God's people, but the religious leaders were forcing God's people to serve the Sabbath. And to serve the Sabbath in ways that God never intended. So he was challenging them. He was challenging them on their knowledge. He was challenging them on their understanding. And then this, he was also confronting them on their authority. Chapter 6, verse 5 says, And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Huge statement. Huge statement. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is claiming that he is Lord of the Sabbath. So here are the religious leaders. 
the Pharisees and the scribes, the men who who knew the law, who applied the law, who oversaw the law. And and Jesus is talking to these men with this authority in in Israel, and and he's confronting them and saying, you you don't know and you don't understand the law that you are talking about, and I, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am Lord of the Sabbath. I, 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 I have the authority to interpret this. I have the authority to, to say what is right and what is wrong. Even more than just in, in explaining a law or a rule, what, what he's saying is that he has authority over the very gift that God has given to his people. So this claim by Jesus is a huge, huge claim. So we don't, we don't have a description in, in those verses of the reaction of the Pharisees um, to Jesus' claim of authority here. But by placing the next confrontation immediately after this one, both of them on the Sabbath, we can gather that the Pharisees are really, really angry about what happened. Um, both Mark and Luke place this second Sabbath confrontation confrontation next this one a confrontation over healing look at verse six on another sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was withered and the scribes and the pharisees watched him they watched jesus to see whether he would heal on the sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him you see that part they were looking for a reason to accuse him Like they were already upset with Jesus and now they're just watching him. And what they're watching him for is a misstep. Anything that Jesus does that is a misstep so that they can accuse him. Now, now the word here where it's talking about accusing him is, is, is much worse than just, hey, you shouldn't have done that. They want to actually bring legal charges against Jesus. And so what they're doing is watching him in the synagogue on the Sabbath, hoping that he will heal so that if he does heal, they can actually bring legal charges against him. Now, what did we say a few minutes ago the the potential penalty for that would be? Death. They wanted to kill Jesus. Jesus knew it, verse 8 says, but, but, but he knew their thoughts And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And the man rose and stood there. Jesus knows their thoughts, right? He knows knows what they're thinking as it's going on. He senses them watching him, looking at him, looking at the man. He knows what they're thinking. And so in, in this case, he brings on the confrontation. Jesus doesn't wait. He calls the man with the withered hand to come to him, to the very center of the confrontation. Verse 9, as the man comes, verse 9, Jesus turns to the Pharisees and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to destroy it? Amazing questions from Jesus. They were wanting to trap Jesus. They really were. They were wanting to trap Jesus, and now they find themselves in a bit of a trap. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm? That should be an easy answer for them, right? I mean, we're not Pharisees. We know the answer to that. To do good. To do good is good. We should do good for a brother or a sister. To save a life 
or destroy? Again, an easy answer. To save a life, to save a life is better than to destroy a life. Now, I, I, I want to... I want to remind us of of something, and hopefully it will bring some clarity on some of what was happening here. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 22 when they tried to trick Jesus by asking him what the greatest commandment of God was? The greatest commandment of God, teacher, tell us what is the greatest command. He answered, the first is what? To love God. God. The first is to love God. All you are, with all that you are, with all that you have, with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, uh, love God. But he added a second. A second is like it. And what was that? To love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said something that I'm just incredible. He said, on these two hang all of the law and prophets. Every single law that was a part of Judaism, every single law that God gave as a command to his people all hung on those two things, loving God and loving people. What that means is all of those laws are descriptions of what it looks like to love God and to love people. Every single one of those laws, including the Sabbath laws. The Sabbath law hangs on those two laws of loving God and loving people. The Sabbath laws or the Sabbath law that God gave is a picture of what it means to love God. It's God saying, right? If you love and worship me, set this day aside for your good to rest, but also a day when you can honor me in worship. Remember who I am. Remember the things that I have done for you. The Sabbath law is a picture of loving God, but listen to me. It does not do away with loving others. It does not negate the second greatest commandment of loving others, and that's what the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisees loved the law. I've been in church with a lot of people like that. Love the law. They loved the law. They loved all of the things that were added to the law. They knew all of it. They were lawyers who knew all of the laws, the, the 39 categories in every rule and which, which category that it went to. They knew all of that, and they knew how to apply it, and they loved the law. And they gave no consideration to loving their neighbor. Here's here's what Jesus is saying, I think. At least if we put this all together, Jesus is saying to them, my neighbor is here. It's the Sabbath. My neighbor is here with me, and I can easily help him. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. Jesus is, again, confronting the knowledge and understanding of, 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 of the religious leaders. Like, like you, you don't know the heart behind the law. You don't understand the law. 
These rules that you've added is not a way for you to, to love God and to love people. I, I would question, and it, maybe I shouldn't. Did the Pharisees love God or did they just love the laws? He's confronting them on their knowledge and their understanding. Do you understand the law? Do you, do you know the heart of God behind the law? And he is, he is confronting them again on authority. Here, even in the synagogue, he's saying, there is nothing that you can charge me with. So that leads to the conclusion, right? How, how, how did these events end? How did this confrontation conclude? What were the responses with with all that was happening? Let's start with Jesus's response. Um, Luke doesn't mention much uh, in a response from Jesus, but there's one thing that we see with certainty. He is is not backing down. Like like he's not backing down. He, he, He stands rightly for what is good and right and true and holy. He, he stands for what is just, and, and, and he, is, he is confident in his confrontation with them. So, so Luke only gives us a picture of, of Jesus standing in defense of the man, standing in defense of the man with the withered hand, standing in defense of the disciples who were hungry, standing against injustice in this case. Mark gives us a few more of the details in his description of what happened on these days and how that confrontation or those confrontations affected Jesus. Mark 3, Jesus confronts the Pharisees over the the healing of the man with the withered hand, knowing knowing their thoughts. Verse 4, it says, And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. Jesus poses the same question to them, Mark records, and and Mark adds, but they were silent. And then verse 5, and he looked around at them with anger. Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Mark says that that, that Jesus questions the the Pharisees, and, and they were silent. They refused to answer Jesus, even though they knew well the answers. Jesus, by this, he was emotionally moved. It says he was angry and he was grieved. So why was Jesus angry? Why was he he grieved? It says because of the hardness of their hearts. It's because these religious leaders had hard hearts. They were hardened. They didn't love the man who stood before them with a withered hand and could easily have been healed. They did not love the man. They had hardened heart when it came to to hearing the the Lord of the Sabbath, when it came to hearing Jesus talk about or share really what was the the heart of God in in this matter, to to save a life or destroy it, to, to help or not to help. These were the shepherds of Israel. They were supposed to be the shepherds of Israel, God's people. And here they were with, with cold, hard hearts filled with pride. Their heart's too too hard to receive the truth, too hard to receive the king. Jesus was angered, and he was grieved. 
What about the Pharisees? The Pharisees' response. We said in the first confrontation that it was evident that the Pharisees were upset. They were angry. They were looking for a way to make these legal charges come against Jesus and and stick a a charge that if guilty would likely mean the death of Jesus. And Luke 6, 11 says, but they were filled with fury. They were furious. And they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. They were so angry that their discussion for how to stop Jesus or, or catch Jesus and, and discredit him, the, the conversation changed from discrediting Jesus to killing Jesus. How do we bring a charge against him to shut him down completely by killing him? So I, I asked, why was Jesus angry? Why was Jesus grieved? I, I, I asked that now of them. Jesus, his, his anger was a righteous anger. He was grieved over the condition of those hardened hearts and the, the people that should have been shepherded and weren't being shepherded, the people who should have been cared for and weren't being cared for. He was grieved by that, and he was angry at their hard hearts. Why were the Pharisees so angry? The Pharisees were angry because, because Jesus wasn't following their rules. Let me say that again. The Pharisees were angry because Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, God in the flesh, the creator and sustainer of all things, they were angry because Jesus wasn't following their rules. He wasn't doing things the way they thought they should be done. They were angry because a commoner from Nazareth dared confront them. And publicly challenged them. They were angry. They were furious because in the confrontation, Jesus won. If there was a winner in this face-off, Jesus won. He won, and he won very publicly, and it was humiliating and embarrassing for them. They sought at least to discredit him. Now they sought not just to discredit him, but to kill him. They were the ones who had been embarrassed, humiliated, and and now discredited. Everyone there in the synagogue saw it. It was no secret that they were out to get Jesus. Everyone knew they were out to get Jesus. And, and, And here in the synagogue on that day of worship, with all of the people in there looking on, they saw Jesus discredit them. They saw the questions of Jesus go unanswered. And it was a blow to their pride. Pride. Now we're getting somewhere. Pride. Ultimately, that's what it was. It was their pride. They thought way too highly of themselves than they ought. Again, they are standing in the presence of Emmanuel, God with us. That they are standing in the presence of, of Jesus, the creator and sustainer of all things. And they completely ignore the truth of his words. They are furious and look to kill him. It's pride. They were the authority, the Pharisees. 
They were the authority. They knew all the rules. They knew all the rules, all the additions to the rules. They knew all of it, and, and, and they knew, knew what should be. It was their job to enforce the rules. Who was he to question them? Right? Who, who are you? To come into the synagogue and all of, these, all of these people, who are you, Jesus of Nazareth, to, to doubt us? Who are you to not recognize the authority that is ours? Who did he think that he was? Here's the bottom line. They were king in their world, and they were unwilling for him to be king. They had to be king. They had to be the rulers Jesus could not be. They looked to accuse him because he wasn't the king. He had no authority. He couldn't be right. He was Jesus from Nazareth, and they were the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the authority and not him. It's, it's, it's interesting to me, these, these men who knew the Old Testament so well, they would have been very well acquainted with, with a lot of passages that talk about what Jesus would do, the, the promised one, when he came. They, they would have been acquainted with Isaiah 35 that, that, that said when the promised one came, he would open the eyes of the blind. The lame man, the lame man would leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute would sing for joy. He will come. He will save God's people. He will fix their brokenness. He will be a healer. He stood in their midst. They saw him heal outside the synagogue every day of the week. They saw him heal on this day. He was there standing in their midst. They should have seen him. They should have recognized him. They should have worshiped him. They should have learned from him. But they didn't. And they not only willfully disregarded him, they sought to kill him. They sought to kill him so they could continue to be king without question. Now, let me ask you who is your king? Who is your king? Is it, is, it, is it you or is it Jesus? Is he really the authority in your life or is he only an occasional authority when you let him be? Is, is he my authority? I've been asking myself this question for a week. Is, is he really my king? Is he my authority, or, or dare I confess that I am my own authority often? Do I pick and choose what commands to follow and what commands to ignore? Do I love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me, or do I love my friends and hate my enemies, cursing those who might persecute me? Do I really love my neighbor as myself? Do I, do I see the things that he calls sin as sin, or, or have, I, have I found a way to be the one who decides what is sin and what is not? Do we savor certain attributes of, of, of Jesus and, and write others off? Do we love the Jesus who saves the woman caught in adultery because he is full of grace? Do we despise the Jesus who tells her 
go and sin no more. So many questions. Here's what I know. Jesus is my Savior. This, this whole last sermon series was about that. He, he loved me when I was most unlovable, and he still does. As most days, I am most unlovable. He, he lived his life, I firmly believe, with me in mind, and you as well. He lived his life with me in mind, living the life that I cannot live. I know that he died the death that I deserve, defeating death and sin and Satan for me through his resurrection so that I I might live with him forevermore, raised to a newness of life. I I know that through faith in his work and not in my own works, not not meeting every letter of the law, I know that through, through faith in his work and not my own, I am washed clean of my sin, forgiven and made a child of God forevermore. I know that Jesus is my Savior. Here's the thing. He is more than my Savior. He is also my King. And He is your King. In fact, He is the King. All authority, all authority, all authority, all authority, all. All, all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. He is king. How then should we live? That's the question. Do we believe that he is king? We talk about this a lot at New City. It's it's what we believe that determines how we live. Do we live a life that shows that we believe that Jesus is king? Or or a life that shows that we really believe that we are king? Do we believe that he is king? If not, like the Pharisees, we will follow our own laws and push back on all of his. We'll find every reason for him to be wrong and us to be right. But if he is, if we truly believe that all authority is his and he is king... And our lives should be dramatically different. How then should we live? That's the question. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, who is a king. Thank you for your kindness and your patience and your goodness to us. Your patience. Your patience with us when we live as if Jesus is not king. Father, remind us again and again that Jesus is more than a nice guy. That Jesus is more than a sacrifice paid for us. But Jesus is king. Father, I pray that you would remind me again and again and again. We love you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.